Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, and as ever, I'm your podcast host. In this mini-series, we are exploring and celebrating The House of Psychotic Women, the seminal book by Kayla Janice. What do you think? Go ahead, be honest, just tell me. You think I'm insane? You. you hate me. But it's difficult, don't you understand? It is difficult. I didn't want it to happen, but it happened. No. Published a decade ago now, its ripple effects can be felt on a whole generation of film fans, filmmakers and critics, with myself very much included. Kila Janice's House of Psychotic Women is many things. A book of film criticism, a study of female neurosis on screen and a memoir. Over the next few episodes of this series, I'll be talking to guests about the book and some of the films featured in it. In the first episode, which you can listen to now, we dove deep into the themes and the writing of the tome itself. But for the next few episodes, I took off my curatorial hat and I handed over the choosing of the films to my guests. I've invited some of my favorite contemporary horror filmmakers to pick a film featured in House of Psychotic Women and talk about what the film and careless book means to them. In today's episode, I'm joined by the fantastic Prano Bailey Bond, the director of Censor, who chose to talk about Let's Scare Jessica to Death. This 1971 cult classic has been gaining traction over the past few years, but remains somewhat of a hidden gem. It follows the titular Jessica, played by Zora Lambert, a recently institutionalized woman who's having bizarre experiences after moving into a supposedly haunted farmhouse, where she becomes the object of obsession of a maybe vampire, maybe ghost. We actually covered this film in our Female Monster series a while back, so if you are as fascinated by the film as Prano and myself are, you can have a double dose of Let's Go Jessica to Death. If you enjoyed this episode, do let me know. You can find me haunting Twitter at AnnaBeDemented, and you can support the podcast over on Patreon or just by leaving us a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. And with all of that said, please join me and Prano Bailey Bond in the House of Psychotic Women. Prano, thank you very much for making some time uh, to come on. Always a pleasure to see you, Anna. <laughs> and, he. And, and we're seeing each other and we actually put on clothes and put on makeup for this. We did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got properly dressed like a normal human being. I know. Although, you know, this is not great podcast material, but don't worry. Just the top bit is normal human dress. The bottom bit is just yeah. comfy socks, water, hot water bottle and um, gym jams. I am wearing trousers, I have to say. I have been over the summer, the, the odd Zoom I've had where you go, I can't get up and shut the door because I'm only in my pants <laughs> from the top up. I look like a normal human being. But um, yeah, we're into the winter now, so I'm wearing trousers. <sighs> you you did me there. Um, but we're going to be talking about Let's Go Jessica to Death and... Contrary to the usual way that I record these episodes, instead of me picking the film and giving you kind of a selection to pick from, I just went, what film did you want to talk about for this mini series based around Keila Janice's book, House of Psychotic Women? So I want, before we start talking about the film itself, I wanted to ask you, kind of, what is your relationship with Keila's book? Well, I, I have owned the book for many years. Um, I, remember having it for ages and thinking I need to read that I need to read that and I think it was before I went to shoot censor so 
uh, period, probably early 2019 or around then, where we were gearing up to shoot the film, which was when I was like, I need to dive into this book because obviously making a film like Censor that that hinges so much on uh, somebody's interpretation of reality and um, whether their perspective is real or imagined and all of those ideas, it felt like those those themes obviously are exactly what Keela is exploring the book. So I started reading the book then, but then happened to get incredibly busy making the film. So I took the book with me when I went to shoot Censor. Oh so it was it was there in my flat. And I don't know, maybe the the power of all these psychotic women somehow <laughs> gave me some <laughs> some uh, mad strength and uh, seeped into the film, perhaps. Um, but I think it's just such it's such an amazing book, even though I haven't I have to admit I haven't read it cover to cover. Um, but I've read, you know, a lot of the kind of earlier parts where Keela is diving into her personal life. And there's so much honesty there that's really fascinating. And I guess the way that that connects you to the films that she's discussing grounds these films in a reality that makes them even more powerful mm. um i i also like i say i really admire her honesty this like laying your life bare like that in a book um and how we connect to her as an author and how we connect to the films through her perspective um but it, it's an incredible resource and kind of encyclopedia of the way that women have been, you know, depicted on screen for us all in horror films. And it's fascinating, isn't it, to be able to sort of see this array of of madness and hysteria and psychosis and all the things that that women have been accused of or have mm. been and the analysis of that and where we think there's truth in that and where it's being projected onto us um, and how much we can own that in a way. I, I, I just, it really fascinates me, this subject, and it's very much a part of Censor and a part of um, other films that I'm working on now and, and in terms of women and sanity and, and hysteria and uh yeah the how, how much we can kind of take ownership of our emotions um and where we're undermined around those emotions and and that's why let's get jessica to death is such a fascinating film as well and i wanted to ask you kind of what do you think of when you think of psychotic women and kind of what were you thinking of when you were when you were reading those chapters that interweave you know film history and criticism and this very idea that you've just touched on on you know whether it's a mad woman or a woman onto which madness is projected kind of when you think of that mad woman hysterical woman psychotic woman or an hinged woman whatever you want to call it there's many names for the same thing mm. what do you think of i think the yellow wallpaper often comes mm. to mind and perhaps that's something that a lot of us go back to because that story encapsulates the idea of a woman being put into a situation where she goes mad and then is punished or accused of being mad by the person that put her in that situation. And I think that that's a story that um, echoes history in so many ways. Um, you know, you think of the witch burnings and uh, the history around the witch burnings and moving from that into, uh, you know, medical uh, ideas around hysteria and how, how, the, how history has kind of depicted women's emotions and, um, and, and taken away women's power in terms of how they express their emotions. I think it's incredibly political. Um, so uh, those are uh, many of the the things that come to mind. But then when it comes to mm. uh, sort of cinematic exploration of that, like a lot of the 
the films that are referenced in the book instantly some of these images come to mind like possession mm. <laughs> you know these this woman in a in a subway kind of throwing herself around and what brought her to this point and she's alone she's not doing this for anybody else this um these kind of wild expressions female wild female expression I think is um all of these things come to mind in my head, a picnic at Hanging Rock and, you know, the, the way that hysteria can can sometimes be much, much quieter, you know, than than something like possession. There's all these different expressions, aren't there, of, of this hysteria, of this kind of boiling up of um, a woman inside because of the oppression going on around her and how that cracks out of her in some way. Um so all of those things come to mind. And you mentioned that you had the book with you on set while you were actually shooting censor. Kind of was there elements of of kind of going back to it or or you know the the bits that you had read or reading it that you that incorporated themselves into Enid, who I think censor is introduced also involved um introduced in the new edition of the book, the 10th anniversary edition, which has expanded the with it, many additional titles, uh, kind of that depict a psychotic woman in them. Kind of was that any at any point kind of a part of the creation of Enid? Um I wouldn't say that the book was a was part of the creation of Enid. Like Enid is a very personal character and um yeah she comes from my experiences but I think what the book does is when you read it kind of back up what you're feeling and thinking um I'd love to say I had the book on set it was in my flat I really like this idea of me being a director who's like carrying around <laughs> like a little library <laughs> actually it kind of feels like it is me but I'm just there with my iPad it's much more convenient but mm -hmm. it was back in my I remember like going, you know, there were certain books that I just took with me and I never had any time to read these books while I was shooting the film, but just being surrounded them by them mm. almost sort of um, inspired me, I guess. Um, I would, yeah, I wouldn't say it had necessarily like any kind of direct impact on Enid and her development um, because Enid came from my own experiences my imagination speaking to female film censors um researching the idea of um a missing family member and also thinking about this like blurred line between fiction and reality that was going on during the 1980s and they were all the things that were really infusing who Enid became but um there's this well of uh psychotic women in this book and the way that they've been kind of depicted through like history and cinema and of course that's going to be a brilliant resource to just sometimes like spark something or just make you feel like you're on the right path mm. or I think it's interesting because you think the way that Keila is writing about these films in the book that she's almost seeing something in these films that's um she can identify with and speaks to her experience and in a way like that book can do the same for for me <laughs> you mm. know it's like a sharing point isn't it of of our experiences um both as women and as you know cinema obsessed people so this feels like a good point to go into let's scare jessica to death and and like i mentioned kind of when i wrote to you first about this um this recording i sort of said pick whatever film you want that's featured in the book and you came up with a few suggestions all of which are brilliant films and with so much meat in them to discuss but what what made you land on let's get let's go jessica to death um yeah there are so many and I was like, oh my God, Heavenly Creatures and Black Swan and The Witch Who Came From The Sea, mm. which just a note on that film. I mean, I saw that after shooting Censor and mm -hmm. thought, how the hell did I not watch this beforehand? Because it's such a great reference. Like it's such a good touch point for the film and it's really um, 
underrated and not very well known and so part of me wants to talk about that film because mm. I want more people to know about it but when I think of psychotic women I guess I land on let's scare Jessica to death in a heartbeat and I adore the film I think it's uh it's just I go, I've gone back to it time and time again and I'm never disappointed I recommend mm. it to people and no one's ever come back and said they didn't like it everybody's always surprised that they've never heard of it before and then recommends it to someone else and mm. I just don't think it's had enough love um, I was introduced to the film by Kim Newman who is you know a big cheerleader of Let's Get Jessica to Death um, and I was lucky enough to see it the first time I saw it uh, I think it was on film actually in the main screen at BFI South Bank mm -hmm. and yeah I I was blown away by this film but I guess the reason I've picked it is because of the way it deals with uh, a woman's mental health uh, a woman's self-doubt um, and in some ways uh, a sense of gaslighting um, and this, the way it, it treads this amazing line between uh, psychological or mental health and supernatural, because we're being put into um, the perspective of a woman who does not know if what's going on is supernatural or if it's mm. in her head. And to me, that is both terrifying and heartbreaking. And I guess that's something that really like I'm always left with in this film. It's, it is a horror film, mm. but it's more sad than anything else. It's, it's just, it's a tragedy. Like the horror, there's an eerie tone in the film, but the horror doesn't really come in until quite late, mm. I think. And so really it's this, um, it's it's in so many ways it's like a drama about self-doubt and jealousy and sanity and uh yeah all of these amazing sort of ideas and and it's done so well and that central performance is just incredible by mm. Zora Lampert yeah and I wanted to, I wanted to talk about kind of Jessica and Zora's performance because like she is the heart of the film and even the title of the film is kind of an invitation to mock her mm. um to scare her to the point of no return and i was wondering kind of what do you think about jessica as a character kind of what is the journey that she goes through because it is it does feel like everything in the film from the tone to you know her relationship with emily or abigail to everyone else that she's interacting with in the in the house that they're living in the town that the they're staying in everyone is kind of almost conspiring against her mm. so kind of what do you think of her and her journey through the film yeah it's so yeah it's so true and um I think there's that uh, the opening scene where we're introduced to her in in a way kind of encapsulates her journey, which I think is really interesting. Mm. So we we see this car, this hearst, drive up and stop at a graveyard, and the back boot opens, and this woman leaps out, so warm and childlike and excited. And I think childlike is really the word. And uh, mm. she kind of skips off to do these, um, I don't know what you'd call them, like these kind of sketches, like pencil sketches over the top of, of graves. And in that scene, we see her see a girl standing on a hill and we hear her in a monologue of questioning whether what she's seeing is real or not. And she says something like, don't tell them, they won't understand in her, in her kind of voiceover. And we see this huge shift in her where she retreats into herself and goes back this kind of shaky mess and gets back into the, the back of the hearse. And, and I think that kind of in some ways it sort of encapsulates her journey from being this, oh, she's just so lovely. Like it, she's, she's so um caring 
mm. and kind of goofy and sweet and wouldn't hurt anybody and you know there's something so warm about her and that just makes us kind of care about her and sympathize with her even more and it makes it even more heartbreaking what happens to her mm. um, and that's who I see burst out of that um, the back of that boot but then there's another scene where I, I feel like we see that warmth and it's the seance mm-hmm. um, so uh, uh, you know Emily has um, been allowed to stay for the night and she suggests that they do a seance and the men, Duncan and Woody, are a little bit hesitant because they're worried about Jessica, um, you know, cracking or like, is this going to tip her over the edge? So we see their sort of, you know, like they're, they're not so sure about this, but Jessica just kind of goes with it. And it's handed over to her. And the the way she's inviting the spirits, asking them if they're okay and, and listening to them, there's just, again, this, like, this sort of really caring woman who she's not sitting there kind of being spooky and, you know, mm. like trying to creep people out or anything. She cares. Like she cares mm. about these long dead people. And there's just something super beautiful about that. And then we get to the end of the seance and she's listened to all these sounds and voices and this kind of history in the house. And she just says something like, so sad. And I just, I just end up loving her so much. And, and so you sit with her, you sit with her in her awkwardness and her jealousy and those moments where she's watching her partner you know, be seduced by or flirt with uh, Emily, this kind of intruder in their house, in their life, who she's kind of welcome to stay. Um, and, and, and she never stands up for herself. And it's all because of the way that she doubts her sanity mm. and the way that she doubts her reality. And um, it just makes it more upsetting, really, to watch. Do you think that that openness is part of the reason why Emily latches on to her? Yeah, I do. It's funny because in like traditional vampire yeah. terms, you know, <laughs> we know we know those rules. Don't we? <laughs> <laughs> the vampires meant to be invited, aren't they? Mm-hmm. You, you know, the vampire can't come into your house unless unless they're invited. And uh, Jessica invites Emily to stay. In, in a way, I almost feel like Emily sets that up for her. Mm-hmm. Like she sets it up and she invites her to stay. But that comes a little bit from the fact that she's so happy that Emily is real. Mm-hmm. Because in the moments just before that scene, we've seen her think she's imagining that there's somebody in the house and it once again say, don't mention it to them. They'll think I'm crazy in her voiceover. And then when Duncan sees Emily as well, Jessica's like, instead of being like, oh my God, how terrifying there's someone in the house, she laughs. She's just so happy that she's not crazy. Mm. And so off the back of that kind of joy, she ends up inviting Emily Emily to kind of stay. And I think that in vampire terms, in a way that sort of sets her up as, as the prey um, for Emily. So yeah, she is targeted for mm. sure by Emily because Emily doesn't go for Woody. Woody's the single guy. She goes for Jessica's partner. And um, what do you think of Emily slash Abigail Bishop? Like, how does that, I know this is sort of roughly, it, it's a kind of an, a weird mix between the yellow wallpaper and also Carmilla and also every other vampire and also every other ghost film that we've seen. Um, where do you think kind of Emily slash Abigail sits? It's a good question. She's she's incredibly creepy. I mean, <laughs> brilliantly creepy. I love her because she sits somewhere between a sweet friend and a total bitch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure that we've all had friends like that when we were teenagers. I mean, maybe some people still do now. Still but... now. <laughs> but but she she encapsulates that that danger and 
also that self-doubt so well because she's actually on the surface so nice to to Jessica. Mm. So how could Jessica accuse her of anything? Um, And again, that makes it feel like it's all happening in Jessica's mind. But um, when you watch the film like over and over again, you start to see the little details that really do make you feel like Emily's been living there for yeah. what would it be? I think it's like 1880, isn't it? When yeah. they talk about her story happening and this was shot in or made in, came out in 1971. So, you know, it's like she's been there for almost a century mm. um, at, at this age. I, I, I think that she is a vampire. Um, she, when they arrive, somebody asks her, like, how long have you been staying here? Or how long have you been here? And she's like, oh, ages. <laughs> and you go, okay, what, like, as in decades, mm-hmm. you've been here for decades. She is the woman in the picture, isn't she? And these men around the town all know about her and they are worn in the traditional horror styly like don't go to that house you know they're all kind of putting a doom factor when they Mm. say where they're staying or they they close up when they know that they're staying at that particular house and nobody wants to buy these um you know trinkets and images that they've brought from the house to the to the kind of bric-a-brac shop like he doesn't want those things because they all know the history and then you have these strange men around the village with sort of these odd marks on their neck, which are they vampire bites? Has she infected the whole village? What kind of world is this? What kind of village is this? Um, It all kind of comes back to this one creepy girl who drowned in the lake and never got to marry the man that, we don't know if she was in love with him or not, but she never got to go through with that. Yeah, she never got that closure. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like feasting on the other men around her and that happens to be Duncan. <laughs> and do you think her her feasting on the men or her like biting the men is a different type of approach than the one she makes with Jessica? Because it feels like there's more of a kind of like, I want your entire soul, like your being, mm. whether it's the men maybe are just sustenance. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're you're right on that because the there's this sort of weird um there's like almost two voices in Jessica's head. Mm-hmm. Or well, there's many voices, but we can split quite clearly at times when it feels like we're hearing Jessica speak to herself and when we cut to these um you know, close-ups of Emily's piercing eyes mm. and we hear her saying things like stay here with me forever and Mm. things like that, that it does feel like Emily wants Jessica to just be there and stay with her. But what does she want her for? I, I'm not sure to torture her, to taunt her. No no one really knows. (laughs) And that's kind (laughs) of part of the appeal, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That mystery in this film is is definitely that treading of this ambiguous line is 100%, you know, part of the appeal for me. And you mentioned the kind of the village and the house and the the eeriness of it. And I love how I love sad horror. I love horror films that are kind of actually just tragedies, but using the framework of horror films to present those tragedies to you know people go to see horror films to get scared Mm. and then if you accidentally on purpose make them just very very depressed i think that's a win for sad horror Mm. um so i was wondering kind of how do you how do you think the what do you think of the film's um atmosphere and this eerie tone that you mentioned at the start yeah i mean it starts with that amazing monologue doesn't it Mm. that sets us up that we also end with this kind of bookend monologue of Jessica questioning like dreams nightmares reality they're all kind of blurred together I don't know which is which and so we sit in this um off kilter weird world right from the start but then then we kind of move into something that's quite like twinkly you know, we're kind of this sort of twinkly 
sort of nice music, but it's got this undertone of sadness. But I do think that also comes from Jessica, though. It's She's got, I, I think, again, it's like down to this amazing performance by Zora Lampert that there's this sadness in her eyes, even her physicality. Mm. She's this tall, beautiful woman, and yet she's kind of hunched over. She holds herself in this very insecure way. She's always got her arms crossed over. She doesn't, like, present herself um, in a confident way at all. And and she carries this sadness and this self-doubt with her, which does echo into into this like sad beautiful twinkly music but um i think it's this eerie wind the sound design and it's doing so much you know at the beginning to settle us into this like really eerie suspenseful strange world and turning up at the house and seeing that chair just slightly rocking we are placed in Jessica's mind basically in those Mm. moments and and so we start to question what's real and what's not and um I think all of those things you know the the tone um the point of view the performance like they're all feeding into that uncomfortable atmosphere Mm. And what about the house itself? Like the thing that makes me really think that it's a ghost film as well as a vampire film is that that really creepy isolated house, the lake, the the look of it. It al- always strikes me as being almost like it was shot through a fog. Mm. I it's it's might sound weird, but like this sort of foggy element to it, like it, the house itself is just not quite part of reality. Do you yeah. ever get that feeling when you've watched a film? Yeah, it kind of looks like the like ultimate haunted house, doesn't it? It's, mm. <laughs> it's like you see it and you go, oh, yeah, that's the, the creepy house from my nightmares or my imagination. That's the peak version of a haunted house whenever I see that hearse drive up to it. But then once we're inside as well, the, I don't feel like we ever fully understand the geography of the space, which mm. I like. And you've got that introduction to the house where, you know, is there an intruder? Is there a ghost in there? And you've got Jessica kind of creeping in and out of these pockets of light and darkness. Weirdly, weirdly kind of slightly elated because she's been proven not mad in that moment. (laughs) But yeah, you've got her like creeping through this sort of creaky wooden house um and then there's the oppressiveness of the bedroom as well which she puts all these um images that she's she's taken from gravestones that she like as soon as they get into the bedroom which has this like really oppressive um full-on wallpaper that she then surrounds herself with images of gravestones um and that room becomes like a I don't know, it becomes this kind of really claustrophobic space, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Like there's this amazing scene in that room um, when it's after she's started to really see Duncan and um, Emily flirting. And what's so uncomfortable about this scene is everybody in that room knows exactly what's going on. Duncan looks so uncomfortable with his own feelings. Woody is upset because he liked Emily, but he's also upset for Jessica. And there's this really awkward scene where Jessica once again, excuses herself. Again, you see her never confront these things, which makes us weirdly like her more because she just sort of, you know, makes a joke or... It's very relatable. Yeah. It's really relatable. Rather than, like, accusing anybody or challenging anyone, she just sort of skips away like she does when she's... They're massaging each other in the lake as well. And she almost doesn't want to face that reality. And she does that in that scene and goes upstairs. And then Duncan comes up and they have this horrible scene where they're lying in bed and... Um, he suggests that she should go back to the doctors and she's thinking basically he doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't find me attractive anymore because of my 
because of my mental health problems. And we see this kind of weird, uncomfortable line between like, does he just want to get rid of her because she's become a burden and he likes the idea of this new woman who's much easier to deal with and he's kind of growing feelings for. And she's, she cries out in that scene in this horrible way. It's so uh, disturbing the way she cries out. And he says, um, somebody might hear you. And, and she turns back to him and she's like well so what what does it matter and you just see this like relationship crumbling when he leaves that room and leaves her on her own oh I don't know that it's just it's so heartbreaking and relatable and she's so isolated and lonely and is that loneliness because of her psychological state and it's like that collision of her psychological state and these relationships but and again, then later we have the kind of the men creeping in on her in that room as well. So it's a funny room, that one, because it's almost quite nondescript and like sort of dead. But in a way that really works for the scenes that happen in there because there's no windows. It doesn't feel like yeah. there's any windows. It doesn't feel like you can breathe in there. So and You've mentioned mm. that like it's it's a terribly sad film that kind of turns into a horror film. At what point do you think it really shifts gears to go into sort of full horror? It's when they come back from the village and around when Woody is on the on the like tractor spraying all the plants and things and then she sees the dead guy and the mute girl and um and it's at that point also the music like starts to say we're in a horror film as well we've got this slightly more like synthy score that kicks in um and we and everybody starts to get killed off <laughs> so like, everybody starts to die <laughs> everyone starts to die and you're like okay we're in a horror film but it's a funny one because it 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 takes it takes a long time to get to that point and then it just it's like it's kind of from naught to 60 isn't it <laughs> <laughs> and what do you make of like those um of those final scenes where everybody's dying everything's kind of clear it is definitely happening kind of when it goes full well it goes into full horror gear um like what do you make of the way that it eventually ends um I I think this the the scenes the moments between Jessica and Emily I think I I love I wouldn't say that the the third act is my favorite part of the film if I'm being completely honest like Fair. I do love the burn up to that um I I I guess the ultimate ending and the fact that we kind of end back where we started and this kind of questioning of reality and this like haunted haunted woman and what the hell is going to happen to her now i i absolutely love that, that i love it so much that i actually tried to i wrote that monologue into censor so at one point enid and her colleague perkins were actually watching let's get jessica to death in a particular scene that we didn't actually make the final cut of the film but uh -huh. um it was a a scene where that film sort of fed into what they were discussing and the idea of some of the dreams that they've had and um, this sort of tipping point for Enid in terms of her reality. So, yeah, I mean, you can tell from me saying that how much of a impact that had on me and, and in a way how much of an impact this film had on Censor because you can find moments like that or, you know, call them like umbilical cords into a project where mm. you take um, something like the monologue from Let's Get Jessica to Death and it's like a an access route into an yeah. idea and it may be that in the end you cut that, that off, it's not part of the film, but it helped you get there, you know, and, and that, that tone, that eerie tone and that self-doubt and doubt around your perception of reality was were all really helpful umbilical cords into into sensor i love the concept of umbilical cords from other projects or fountains of inspiration into the project you're working on at the moment yeah. um and i was wondering you mentioned at the very start you got introduced to this film by kim newman and um who's been a massive champion of the film as kind of an, an i think alongside 
Kayla's book as well. I think the the first copy that I bought, I'm looking at it now, has it just Let's Go Jessica to Death is on the cover. Um yeah. I think Possession was on the first ever cover and then the one that I bought has that, you know, the image of her fading almost into the mountains on the cover. But I was wondering why do you think this film has gone through kind of this revival? Like what resonates about it today? I I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? Because I kind of almost want to go back to when it was released and mm. understand like what didn't land with people at that time because maybe it was it I I heard that it was the or I read that it was the first film horror film to ever use synth and there were so many things about it that that feel really fresh still mm -hmm. I know it I know there's elements of it that do feel dated and particularly to people who aren't used to watching kind of like older horror films like this like it can feel dated with the voiceover and stuff but actually I think there's so much that that feels really fresh and ultimately at its heart the emotional journey of the character is so I mean those kind of feelings are unfortunately they're timeless aren't they self-doubt jealousy questioning your sanity <laughs> and it's done so well in this film by mm. John Hancock and Zora Lampert. Her performance is so truthful. Um, it's kind of, you know, a, it's kind of a faultless performance in so many ways. Mm. And I love that it's a film that has been resurrected um, and that that's like possible for movies that maybe it was before for its time perhaps or it just didn't get the 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 kind of gust behind it that or it didn't get the gust behind it that um that it needed in order to find its audience which we still see like there's films I watch today that I'm like how how does nobody shout about this film <laughs> you know how has this film gone under the radar mm. um and I and maybe that this was just one of those movies that that's how it worked at the time. And I mean, I I owe it to Kim Newman that I've seen it and have like kind of become part of the um, the campaign for Let's Scare Jessica to Death. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've like joined the bandwagon of mm. people like flying the flag for this film. Um, but I think it still resonates because of of the central performance and the, and the emotions. I think it has to come down to that ultimately. I hope your campaign continues to go very well. Yeah. Um, and before we kind of move into the last question, is there anything else about Let's Go Jessica to Death that we haven't touched upon that you wanted to bring up? Um. I think there are some, well, there's things that I kind of found out, I guess, about the, this was actually a debut film. Yes. Um, it was John Hancock's first film and he, he'd worked with Zora Lampert and some of the cast previously because he directed theatre and he'd, mm. he'd worked with them in theatre. Um, yeah, so it was his debut film, but I think, as far as I understand, he the script already existed and he was given the script um, and rewrote it and was asked to keep certain things in the film. So um, he was asked to keep in The Mute Girl, uh, which is interesting because I wonder if he, ha if he hadn't been, would that Mute Girl still be in the film? I suppose she becomes this um, hinge point for Jessica in terms of, her sanity because she's mm. the first thing that she sees and thinks, Oh my God, the ghosts are back or I'm mad and I'm seeing things. But actually again, later on, Duncan sees the mute girl as well. And um, it's just a shame that she's mute and can't back up what Jessica knows that she saw that this dead body. Um, but then also this seance scene that I mentioned um was a, a, apparently a scene that John Hancock didn't think should be in the scene in the film, but he was forced to keep it in. And I think that's really interesting because I actually think it's a really powerful scene. 
Um, and it's like this traditional scene, a bit like her welcoming the vampire to stay where you invite the spirits in, you know, um, and there's this, this tension between Jessica's openness to that idea mm. and willingness and this care and love for the spirits. And you've got these guys being really nervous about whether this is going to like make Jessica snap and, and push her over the edge all over again. So that tension is really interesting. And then the, the seeing this warmth of the character and kind of think, well, what would the film have looked like if that wasn't in it? Would we would we think it it is more like psychological or it is more real and it's less supernatural? And so, yeah, you, as a filmmaker, I'm kind of constantly kind of going like, what's that scene doing for our overall, you know, view of or reading of the film? Um, so I find all of those little details really interesting and and this um, fact that it or I don't know if it's fact, but this thing that I read that it was the first film to to have um, a synth in it because, mm. as we know, synth later became, you know... Passive. Like, yeah. hugely connected to horror. And you think of, like, the famous Carpenter scores and, and how he's become, like, intertwined with the idea of synth. But who did it first? And uh, apparently it was Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I think John Hancock had a synth score done as like a temp score and he was going to get an orchestra and maybe they ran out of money or maybe he fell in love with the temp score. But that's why it's like the first horror film to use synth and no one gives it any credit. No, just <laughs> so, as for the synths in Let's Go Jessica to Death. Yeah. It's not just Carpenter. <laughs> um, I guess and the only other thing that I'd, I'd say about this film after having watched it over and over again is there's one moment that I mm. I that makes me doubt Jessica and it's such a small thing Tell and me. I hope I'm wrong but when the the mole which is actually I think a mouse uh gets killed I'm sure I can hear Jessica's breath and I might be totally wrong because obviously like one woman's breath might sound quite similar to another woman's breath, but, but Jessica wouldn't do that, would she? I just don't want to believe that she'd do that to the mouse. I don't think she would, but there's this little thing of her breath mm. that I can hear over that moment. And it, when I first heard it, I, I just thought, I don't know, it, it threw everything <laughs> <laughs> through everything would it up change, if it was actually jessica would it completely change your perspective on her yeah then if that was jessica then maybe she is more unhinged than we think she is like this is the really interesting thing about this mm. film is i is is she you know she's come out of this mental institute and i want to believe that she's not mad and that she's you know, haunted or, or that there's a supernatural thing going on, but there's still always that question mark. And I'd love to kind of debate that with different people, people who think that Jessica's, you know, quote unquote crazy. Um, and then someone like me who can't bear the thought of that and wants her to be sane because in a way I, I feel like that, you know, we relate to her, don't we? So you're like, I want, I want to be sane. Therefore, I want Jessica to be sane. I want her <laughs> to be the sane woman in this, in this scenario where she's sort of doubting her mind. But yeah, maybe that debate will be something that we can do at a later date. <laughs> um, it's it's really actually thrown my own vision of the film. So whenever I watch it again, I'll be looking out for that scene and that breath. Yeah, I and do. before I let you go, Prano, kind of, is there any other film um, that's covered in House of Psychotic Women that you would recommend for people to check out that perhaps are kind of buried in there um, that, that really strike you? Oh, well, I mean, there's so many, as we have mentioned. I mean, you know, we, talk, we talked a little bit about um, Heavenly Creatures and Black Swan, and I love both of those films and kind of feel like I grew up on Heavenly Creatures. I used to watch it over and over and over again. But as somebody who's just discovered The Witch Who Came From The Sea in, mm. in recent years, 
I would love to start a campaign. Another campaign. (laughs) Another campaign. Because it's just the most, oh, it's fascinating. I think it's a masterpiece, actually. Mm. It's this really woozy, um, nightmarish film where you're exploring a character who has had a kind of, she's suffering from like, perhaps PTSD from Mm. sexual abuse and she's sleeping with quite a lot of men and she's doing things to them or is she doing things to them that are perhaps a sort of reflex of what has been done to her Um, but there's again this the way that this film sort of treads what is really happening and what what could be in her head Um, and the filmmaking is really unique and um expressionistic and it's it's an odd film and i'd really recommend people check that out and yeah my campaign for that one starts here (laughs) (laughs) it's official (laughs) well when i'll find a way to cover that film on the podcast and definitely will invite you back to talk about it because i haven't seen it myself i've always had it like in you know the list of films that i need to watch and i've not had a chance to yet yeah, I was recommended it by my editor. He bought me a copy of it while we were editing Censor. And I was really busy. So I didn't watch it until completing the film. Mm. And it's yeah, it's I really, really recommend it. And we should definitely talk about it once you've checked it out. Definitely. Um, yeah. Prano Bailibon, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Um, and I'm sure this, this is a almost an irre- irrelevant question, but where can people find your work and especially where can people watch Censor? Censor uh, in the UK is available on Mubi and Amazon and probably in other territories uh, as well. I think it might be on Hulu in the States. Cool. Thank Thanks you for having so me, much. Anna.